0: Communism is, to put it mildly, a loaded term. It evokes strong emotions in people of terrible things. Despotism, military aggression, oppression, and most frequently in the West, antagonism. Living in a post-Cold War world, it seems that there's nothing good to say about it. But what is communism, and why is it so awful? Or perhaps more importantly, is it so awful? Today, we're going to look at communism from a high level. We won't have time to get into every single aspect, obviously, as it is a rich and complex starting point for many very interesting pieces of history, but I do hope to at least provide a bit of a framework for its history and a context for the ideas and philosophies. Let's begin. Ethan Blesky. Hello. Are you or have you ever been a card-carrying member of the Communist Party? Uh, no, I have not. I don't believe you. What is this McCarthy trials you're never gonna work in this town again <laughs> We're talking about communism today Yay! Good, good topic way to make me way to make me really uh, have to skip a lot of important stuff <laughs> Let me be very clear about something that's gonna happen okay as we're t- where we're talking about this I'm gonna skip about three things or or glaze over about three things that can really use like their own episode just like all on their own okay most notably um the russian revolution yes which we're just gonna just skate right over (laughs) just i'm I'm sorry everybody this is not the russian revolution episode (laughs) not because i don't want to talk about it i do it's fascinating i love the russian revolution as a topic absolutely but uh we
1: can't i mean i did specify marxism not necessarily communism I think which i I feel like there is a a bit of a difference there th-
0: there absolutely is a difference, and I mean most people when they talk about communism, well, number one, most people don't know what communism is, yeah, number two, when they're when they are talking about communism, I think they're talking about either Marxism or a form of communism that is derived from Marxism, yes, so uh, we could talk about a number of places where communist ideals have come up in the past Mm -hmm. there's been a number of movements especially uh uh, religious movements that have been definitely communist in philosophy yeah uh, at different points in in history but really the type of communism that's most influential and most relevant to the type of history that we're going to talk about today yeah stems from marxism so i mean there are groups like, uh, for example, the Diggers or the Levellers in uh, in England. I always forget the, uh, about the Diggers. Yeah, I, I have a T-shirt with yep. the Diggers on. It. <laughs> Guys, I'm like a full blown history nerd. This is a real thing that actually happened. <laughs> You've seen it. You can. Yep. Yeah. yeah absolutely. You can confirm. It's, it's incredible. God told me to tell you the property is theft. Yep. That's what it says on it. Um, because you know, interestingly enough, when you look at the majority of the uh, the more uh, social justice or philosophical uh, tenets of Christianity, it does have to, ha- it, it does tend to have very communist um, ideas behind it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Working together, share what you have with the, with the less fortunate, all of that. Very, yeah. It, very it's very socialist ideas.
0: Yeah. Ex- extremely socialist. Don't tell anyone in the United States in the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we're going to get to that whole issue of religion and communism a little bit later, but interesting. Okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's there there for a very long time Christianity, especially uh sects of Christianity that are kind of broken away from uh tradition to some extent, okay uh often embraced very communist ideals. So let's All right. maybe we should talk about what communism and socialism actually mean because <laughs> um you know, I it's I I think a lot of times people hear that and think of godless leftists pinkos and you have no idea what these slurs mean, and you know it it's just okay what's what's your what's your conception of of communism? What does communism mean to you uh
1: communism is is it's a socioeconomic um system system i guess in which everybody well not necessarily that everybody shares, but uh the community comes together and 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 helps those who are less fortunate it's sort it's sort of an equalizer. Mm -hmm. between higher and lower classes so that so that uh everybody's pulling their own weight Mm -hmm. everybody is taking care of their basic needs sure and all of that and and it really makes everybody equal and all jobs necessary
0: uh there's a really there's there's a there's a saying that you're dancing around and i bet you've heard it before and you're trying to remember it that sums up everything you're saying really nicely which is from each according to their ability yes. to each according to their need. Yes. And, and yeah, that's a really important part of of uh, communism. That's one really nice thing about uh, communism is that often you can sum up portions of, of what they ascribe to yeah. in like very neat little sayings. Mm-hmm. because there's been so much writing on this, and there's been so many attempts to convince large groups of people that the ideas are important, yeah. that they had to get really good at writing little slogans. <laughs> uh, the, the manifestos are not long for a reason. Yeah. Because people get bored. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I I think I think in general you're you're you've you've got the right idea. It's it's a, a commonality of ownership. I yes. think is the is is one way to put it. Where rather than each person trying to increase their own wealth, their own property is is what we would talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, they're trying to increase property as a whole, and property belongs to the community. Yeah, rather than to each individual. And so it's it's um very much about redistribution of wealth and not even necessarily equal redistribution but appropriate redistribution yes. would be maybe a little bit better way of putting it mm-hmm. because it's not you know you get this whole thing where it's like well under a communist system why would anyone ever work well because if no one works then the the entire community suffers yeah. including that person And I mean, I know that's a pat answer. And one of the things that we're going to be talking about is the difference between communist philosophy and communist implementation. Yes, absolutely. Which are two very different things. Yeah. But in in general, yeah, it's it's this idea that in an ideal communist society, people work at something that they're well suited to Mm -hmm. and their needs are met by the entire community as a whole. And in turn, they help to meet the needs of others within the community and kind of remove the um, inequalities of wealth or ownership from the whole equation, Mm -hmm. thereby, to some extent, well, in in a communist ideal to the entire extent, eliminating class or even nationality. Mm -hmm. Because everyone gets what they need and everyone does what they can. It's very idealistic. It's incredibly idealistic. There's there's that one wonderfully misattributed quote that I actually meant to look up who actually said it because it's one of those ones that everyone just says Winston Churchill because it sounds kind of like a thing that Winston, <laughs> Winston Churchill would say, okay. but I know it's not him. Yeah. Um, I'll stick it in the show notes. The, the one about anyone who isn't a liberal at 20 has no heart and anyone who isn't a conservative at 40 has no mind. <laughs> that does sound like a Churchill thing. It's not. I promise you it's not. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It gets attributed to him all the time. (laughs) So we might as well just kind of dive into Marxism, because really that's what we're talking about when we're talking about communism in general. Yeah. The ideas of communism are really sort of based in uh, the Industrial Revolution and some of the ideas that came out of kind of the mechanization of, of society. Yeah. Because the Industrial Revolution was really... Really awesome if you owned a factory. <laughs> if you worked for a factory, it sucked. Yeah, because here's the thing about owning a factory, which is still true to this day. It's just now that we have laws and things like that to help <laughs> counterbalance it. If you have a factory, if you own machines, yeah, uh, machines don't get tired. Nope. Uh, machines could work twenty four seven. So, if you spend a whole bunch of money on a machine. Mm-hmm. possibly even go into debt buying a machine. Yeah, The longer you have that machine working, mm-hmm. uh, the sooner it'll be paid off and start making you lots and lots of money. Yeah. So if you own a factory, you want the factory running as much as possible. Yeah. Factories paid okay. Factories paid better in general than what you would make running a family farm. Yes. I think in, to some extent people romanticize farming, especially before the 20th century. OK, um, well, I, I mean, you get the whole like, yeah, you know, there, there were no there were no this and there were no that. And farming was still great back 200 years ago and whatever. And it's like, yeah, no, it actually really sucked kind of scraping a living from the dirt. And yeah. sometimes it didn't go so well and oh, people yeah. died of famine and made no money and had to, you know, and then lost everything and mm-hmm. all of that. Right. So instead you can go in, in, instead of kind of relying on a rather inconsistent mode of making an income like farming which could be wiped out with one bad storm. Yeah. What you could do instead is sell your labor which is what a wage is right? Yeah. So you could come into the the, you could come into the city and you could work for a factory for a reasonable but very steady wage. Yes. And there were always people who wanted to work at the factory. Mm -hmm. So there was a philosopher named Adam Smith who talked about uh, the economics of capitalism. Yes. And one of his central ideas, which is very important to capitalism and which is still talked about today, is the economics of supply and demand. Yeah. We're not going to get into Smith too much. It gets boring. But the thing that we need to remember when we're talking about economics is that the ratio between supply and demand determines the price of something. Yeah. If there's too much of something and no one wants to, do- wants to buy it, price is down. Price is down. If there's not enough of something and everyone wants it, price is up. Exactly. There was a surplus of labor. Wage went down. Well, because functionally what that means is you could complain about how little you're making. But they could also just fire you and have someone else who's willing to work for that low wage. Yeah. They don't care. Nope. They just want the machines running. The machines were making a lot of stuff. There was a surplus of these things. Is this the first or the second industrial revolution? I mean, I'm talking about the the Industrial Revolution as though it's a, a monolith of a of a thing, a singular thing. I'm talking about the first Industrial Revolution, but I'm talking more about the Continental Revolution than anything. So, I mean, if you're in so a
1: lot of textiles yeah, at this point,
0: yeah. I mean, uh, there was there was there there were big problems in uh, France over silk uh, textile workers in okay. the 1830s, for example. But yeah, textiles is a big par- portion of it. Okay, as is manufacturing certain uh, easier things like um, uh, timber mills and stuff like that. Okay, and then as we move through the 19th century, you'll get even into things like steel mills, steel mills, etc. Okay. Um, but and and we're also certainly talking about uh, industries like coal mining, which even though they aren't technically uh, they're not technically industrialized, but... but they're they're a product of the Industrial Revolution, yeah. the, the need for that amount of coal. Yes. Okay. Um, Anyway, so, so because they were producing so much of this so, so efficiently, there was a surplus. And surplus means the prices go down. Yeah. And so the factories are making less per unit.
1: Less per unit, which means they can pay their workers less per unit. Exactly.
0: So all of this is really bad for the workers. <laughs> uh, working working uh, an industrial job in the 19th century, it was just the worst. People would work as much as 16-hour days in factories, okay. uh, six or even seven days a week. Uh, child labor was rampant i mean not that it wasn't before the industrial revolution but the difference is now instead of having your kid help out around the farm which is what we would call chores yeah uh now you have a kid pulling carts of coal because they're (laughs) tiny enough to fit through the tiny shafts that you need to drag the coal out of yeah or you know they have those tiny delicate child fingers that make them perfect for weaving
1: yay quick aside. Yeah. I read an interesting article the other day about the first owner of Macy's. Okay. And how he was a Quaker mm-hmm. and it was basically because of him and his um his uh disdain for bartering. Yes. That store prices were fixed. Oh, interesting. Now, would that bartering price be part of this whole um the textile prices going down and all of that a non-fixed price for an item yes so so supply and demand were even more it would be relevant cl- to to those prices
0: yeah it would be closer to a true free market which is what yeah. adam smith was talking about hypothetically in his works yeah um and and that's what people talk about in uh when when they're speaking about pure capitalism right hypothetically The price of a commodity should never be fixed. Yeah. Because it should always match. It should be in constant flux with supply and demand. Correct. Yeah. That would be the ideal price of that thing. Yeah. Um, Because if it's not fixed to that, then someone is getting screwed. Either the manufacturer or the purchaser. Okay. Because either somebody's somebody's selling it for too little or somebody's buying it for too much. Mm Mm-hmm so it's I, I mean we've we've moved away we, we've long since moved away from pure capitalism that's oh, yeah. a, that's a wild west system and, <laughs> and don't let anyone tell you otherwise yeah the we, we, we've had a, a moderated capitalist system for a very long time now, but at this point in time, yes, something like textiles would be more of a commodity rather than a a, a fixed consumer good okay, and so yeah, prices on cotton are going to go up and down, yeah. People would modulate their prices accordingly, and often in that case they would moderate the wages accordingly. Yeah.
1: So, so would it be like you could show up at the factory week by week? You would oh, get God, a different no. paycheck.
0: Oh, a different paycheck? Yeah. Sorry, uh, I thought you were going to say pay- and show up at different, like show up whenever you wanted or something. No, 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 no. no, no. These people were functionally slaves. Yeah. Yeah. I, and yeah, they would just
1: get however much.
0: It, the wages wouldn't mod- uh, wouldn't modulate as much. Okay, but they would be consistently low. Yeah, as much as the as much as the commodities would, would fluctuate, the the workers pay would always stay at the lower end of what they could afford to pay them. So the thing the thing to remember is that they're not like when you when you work. And, and this is this is a Marxist line of thought, but it's okay. one that has entered the, the lexicon to a sufficient amount that it's not what I'm about to say isn't going to sound like crazy communist speak. Okay. When someone shows up to work, they're not making a share of what the owner is selling. Yes. What they're doing is they are selling their own labor, their time and their effort, their time and their physical effort. Mm-hmm. They're selling that to the manufacturer. That's a separate transaction. They're basically a subcontractor. You could call it that. Almost. The, 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 the transaction between owner and laborer is separate from the transaction of owner to buyer. Yes. And they have very little relation to one another Mm -hmm. because demand high or low for the commodity has no impact on supply for labor. Does that make sense? Yes. It doesn't matter. Like if I'm, if I'm making pins and pins are the hot new thing and everybody's buying pins like crazy, but There are a hundred guys lined up behind me to work. I'm still going to take a low wage because if I don't, somebody waiting behind me is willing to take it. Mm -hmm. So it's a completely separate economy. Yeah. And that's like a key part of uh, Marxist ideals. So this is actually a really good transition into talking about Marx's like specific ideas. I've got a copy right here of the Communist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. I've actually got two kicking around you may be thinking why do you have two i'm mostly thinking why do i only have two when you go through history <laughs> these things tend to kind of multiply like you go to clean up a, a bookshelf and there's like an extra one just kind of sitting there you yeah. don't really know how it got there yeah they it's it's short it's it's 40 pages long i it's, know i uh, at least have one yeah yeah you know it's <laughs> just a thing that happens sometimes
1: i, I have one physical and one digital
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's crazy um I, I had I had three at one point. I don't know where the other one went. It's probably um, the one I have. <laughs> maybe, maybe. It could be. I have no idea. It's short and it's tiny. And it wasn't just written by Karl Marx, which is a really important thing that I want everyone to know. There was also a guy named Friedrich Engels, who did at least as much work on this hey, and never that. gets any credit. <laughs> Poor guy. Poor Friedrich. Poor Friedrich. Both Marx and Engels were German nationalists who They were, were living
1: in France, correct?
0: Uh, London, actually. Oh, England. London. Yeah, yeah.
1: I thought. I thought. Why did I think that they were part of a commune in France? You
0: may be thinking of the Paris Commune, which is something that we're going to be talking about later.
1: Okay. Um, were they, they a off of Marx's ideas?
0: Uh, yes and no. Okay. Uh, again, we can get we'll into let it a little it, we'll bit let more. It, yeah. Later. But yeah, most, mostly yes. The the Paris Commune was definitely based on some Marxist ideals. Okay. So these these two men were talking about political revolution in this context of the industrial revolution of Mm -hmm. workers in terrible conditions with little to no protection um, being essentially exploited. Yeah. And I don't think it's that controversial to look at that situation and say, yes, laborers are being exploited in this system. Yes. And, And that's the funny thing when you start actually diving into this work is that little of it seems radical. As much as we think of communism as this incredibly radical, almost heretical set of ideals. Okay. That's that's a product of uh the history of the of the relationships between communist governments and capitalist Western governments. Okay. Yeah. Far more than it is to do with the actual ideas themselves. Because yeah. I'm gonna say a whole bunch of relatively reasonable stuff about, about economy, about history, and about the relationship between the people in power in history and the people who are not in power. I mean, part part
1: of that is is uh, some of these ideas and ideals working their way into our system of thinking over time oh, to of sort of moderate capitalism and yes. and democracy into a-, a sort of middle range between what it used to be at this time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, y- you really have to look at this work in the co- in the historical context too
0: it was absolutely you know? that is exactly right it's very very important but I, I and and of course it seemed more radical at the time but we there's really only one massively problematic thing about the communist manifesto and we'll get to that but okay um basically it explains the it explains all of history as a series of class struggles between those who own what marx and engels called property by which they meant uh means of production so productive property okay um and those who don't okay so far, so good. He, he starts off by saying that the natural state of man, which is more of a very like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you know, <laughs> uh, Thomas Hobbes kind of yeah. idea, but says that basically we start off in a state of natural communism in which everyone is equal. Resources are abundant. Nobody really needs to take anything from anyone else. Yeah. And therefore nothing necessarily belongs to a person. Okay. Because there's no reason to really steal anything from anybody because why bother when there's another one sitting over there? right? Like you're not going to sit on a rock hoard because there's other rocks around, I guess is a really kind of boorish way of putting it. Um, But so, so be it. I mean, food resources, for example, I mean, when, when, uh, when a hunting party comes in, that food is, is shared with everyone, not just by the one person who took it down because that doesn't work as a community. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then he says, uh, history moves into a period where uh, there are masters and slaves where people enslave others to do work for them to create an abundance of resources okay they don't have to do the work themselves they force others into that work yeah but they're the ones who benefit from it okay then you move into a feudalist system where the lords due to uh feudal fealty yeah are paid rent uh are given tribute by uh their serfs uh not because they've really done anything of, of massive value other than Perhaps could be argued military protection. Yeah, but in reality, just because of the social system under which they're living. Okay. Again, the ones that own the means of production are the are the ones that are doing the least work, but are benefiting the most. Okay. Then you move into the current system, the capitalist system, where the owners of the means of production are a class he calls the the bourgeoisie. Yep. Who are the factory owners? Who are the 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 financiers who mm-hmm. own things that make money? Yeah. He's not calling property your book collection. He's not calling property your house, because those yeah. things don't make you any money. No. The property that matters to this is the property that makes you money. The okay. property is vast sums of wealth that can be invested and make more money. Yeah. The property is very specifically factories. So yeah. literal means of production, literally things that make things. Yeah. Whereas there's the working class, the proletariat, who because they don't own any means of production, mm-hmm but still need to make a living somehow are forced to sell the only resource that they have, which is their time and their labor to the bourgeoisie in a very unequal transaction because the amount of work that they have to do uh, versus the amount of gain that they receive from it is disproportionate Mm -hmm. with the, the difference going to the owners of the means of production without actually having to do any real work to create that wealth. Yeah. I mean, there are those who can like. There, there are counter arguments to all of this. Yeah, but again, it's not terribly radical.
1: No, it's it's a little one sided, maybe. But
0: sure, no, absolutely, and and as I as, as you mentioned before, there's a good chance that the fact that this work has informed a lot of our like modern day uh, mm-hmm. understanding, because Marxist uh, theory of history, like Marxist historiography, was incredibly prevalent throughout the 20th century it was very very popular okay but at the same time you know the, the I, I guess the the counter argument to that is okay so maybe maybe marx's thought has kind of uh, entered the zeitgeist of how we think about economic theory yeah or maybe marx was onto something and he kind of pulled back the curtain a little bit as it were on how certain classes of society interact economically yeah um, maybe he just gave, gave us a convenient shorthand for something that has always been there, but wasn't appropriately uh, described. Yeah. Now, the minute that he puts forward this theory, one of two things happens. Number one, everyone tries to cram all of history into this theory. (laughs) Number two, everybody tries to take this theory and disprove it using history. Marx didn't want either of those things. He was not interested in that. Yeah. He actually got really annoyed with people trying to take his theories and apply it either to all of history or to take it and make um, predictive statements. models out of it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because he he was he was trying to say no. I've made observations about general trends in history. Yeah, here they are. I'm just making observations. Okay, um, not telling you how everything is going to go. Okay, and many people took it that way. He 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 actually called it very scientific rather than a, than a philosophy because this wasn't an idea about how things should work. This was his thesis on how things do work. Okay. I get it. It's, it's pedantic. No, it, it makes sense. And
1: it it actually makes him a bit more moderate than. Sure. Well, I would have
0: thought maybe. Don't worry. We'll fix that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He saw another class conflict coming. He saw another turnover, but where in the past a new class came up and kind of took over the means of production. He saw the next coming version of this as being most likely to be a a different sort of economic revolution in that he didn't think that the next leaders would be a a brand new class. He thought that the workers were going to become aware of their plight and uh, collectively decide that they were going to take the means of production into their own hands because they were already the means of production. They just didn't realize it. What he said was that the workers are already the ones Uh, making things. Okay. The proletariat are the means of production. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really the factories. No. It's the workers themselves. Okay. And so this class of workers is going to come up called the conscious communists, the people who understand what their own role is in society. Okay. And they're going to go, we don't really need the bourgeoisie here. We can make all of this work on our own. Yeah. And that once that thought took hold and, and gained traction to a, a large enough extent, it would Uh, sweep through the ranks of the bourgeoisie or sorry of the proletariat and they would learn to create without needing a class to oppress okay because they've already been oppressed themselves and want to move the ownership of this production away from Mm -hmm. individuals and into the hands of society as a whole okay because they're already working together to make things for somebody else yeah. Why can't that somebody else be all of society rather than their mm-hmm. boss? Yeah, he believed that this would eventually kind of domino effect into common ownership of all means of production, uh, the abolition of class altogether, because it would it would uh, result in like a surplus of of production um, without hoarding of that surplus by an elite. Okay he believed that it would result in a more egalitarian distribution of wealth. Okay. And he believed at that point, it may even abolish nationalism because what's because uh, countries are just kind of in, in Marxist thought, a mechanism by which the elite can further oppress uh, lower classes. The idea being that you can have a bourgeoisie nation and a proletariat nation. And through imperialism you have reflected at a national level what's happening at an individual level through the Industrial Revolution. Okay. And this is something that he's writing in 1848, so look at Africa at that point in time and tell me that he doesn't have a point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, he's getting a little bit outrageous at this point. He ends by saying that the only way that this can be accomplished is through... A complete overthrow of the existing system okay. by revolution. Yeah, this is not something that can be transitioned to, to gracefully through a, a bourgeois version of socialism. Yeah, where controls are put in place to kind of satiate the, the the worker. Yeah, because those systems are designed to maintain the current system rather than facilitate the entry of this new communistic system. Okay. So he's advocating for revolution here. Yeah. And that is problematic for basically every existing power. Yeah. He's 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 encouraging revolt. Yeah. Workers the 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 whole thing about the proletariat have nothing to lose but their chains.
1: Workers of the world unite.
0: Yeah, working men of all nations unite is the is the actual line. Oh. Yeah, I know. It's 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 one of those it's it's just Get like Luke, wrong all the time. It's just like Luke I am your father. It never yeah. actually got said. Yeah. The entire, the entire last pa- passage of the, uh, the manifesto is actually just, it's well, it's very, very well written, but it gets, it gets very inflammatory. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it ends by saying, uh, let the, let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution. So, I mean, he's not, he's not a lovey-dovey here. No. He's, he's looking for a fight. Yeah. And yeah, that's a that's a dangerous idea. Of course, it's a dangerous idea. It's no reason. It's no wonder that he was he was uh, kicked out of Germany for being inflammatory. Uh, in fact, yeah. he was kicked out of a number of countries <laughs> before he was done. Yeah, but that's what we're talking about when we're talking about Marxism. I mean, he would go on to develop uh, his ideas further in uh, Das Kapital, um, okay. which was basically a, a several volume long critique of capitalism. Okay. Which, uh, again, Friedrich Engels worked on as well. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, Marx only finished the first volume. Engels uh, finished two and three on his own after Marx died, based on Karl Marx's notes. Huh. So, I mean, again, why does everyone forget Friedrich Engels? He was instrumental in all of this stuff. But that's... Engelsism doesn't sound as good? Maybe. It's just (laughs) not as catchy. (laughs) Need to punch it up a bit. Yeah. I don't know, things like this happen every once in a while. It's like Paul Revere being the most uh famous one to three of them. Warn everybody that the British were coming. He was kind of the worst one of the three too. Yeah. But he made for the best poems, so hey, why not, right? Yeah. Uh anyways. That's yeah, I, I think I think that's probably the best sort of beginning or uh yeah, first Introduction. First, yeah, I think it's the best introduction to Marxism that we can kind of work off of. Yeah. What we're talking about here is not unreasonable it is asking for a change up of the entire system though Mm -hmm. and it's understandable why that would be seen as rather dangerous yeah and it's it's understandable why uh capitalist societies are going to see that as uh problematic moving forward Mm -hmm. so any any questions about specifically the manifesto but also marxist theories in general before we move on because i feel like I, I mean've I've gone over this stuff so many times in in various contexts that I'm fairly fam- like I'm fairly familiar with the concepts and things like yeah. that uh, how are you feeling in terms of just like grasping the general ideas because I I need you to be my my canary on this I'm, one. I'm
1: pretty good at grasping the general ideas right now but um, as we discuss it further, more questions may come up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, well, we'll make sure. So I keep, think
1: I'm pretty good for now.
0: We'll make sure to keep bringing it back to the source material, which yeah, is yeah, really yeah. the kind of the important thing here. And mm-hmm. um, as as we move on, we'll kind of keep trying to relate it to what Marx said, what Marx wanted for communistic societies, how he thought they should be best organized, yeah, uh, things like that, and uh, do our best to keep things uh, uh, a little bit grounded in the philosophy. So. Okay. Uh, this is probably a good place to take a quick break. Yep. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the uh, some of the real world consequences of uh, of Marx's work. Okay. Hey everyone. Hope you're enjoying our return to actual real history after our April Fools uh, episode a couple of days ago. Um, Just wanted to check in quick, I know there's plenty of you out there listening, but I have noticed I don't seem to have any ratings or reviews on iTunes at this point, so if you could do me a quick favor, run over to iTunes, look up HI101 there, and uh, maybe leave me a quick, even just a rating is great, but if you could write a review as well, it can help even more people find the program, which would be absolutely fantastic so if you don't mind heading over to our page leaving us a quick rating and review i would really appreciate it thank you okay we're back on hi 101 here with ethan Blesky. hello and we were just talking about uh marxism yeah and it's a little less scary than maybe you would have guessed from all those black and white uh film strips from the 1950s <laughs> we're doing okay so far yep I don't know. I don't feel like overthrowing society just yet. Eh. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's always
1: bubbling under the surface, but... (laughs) It's
0: it's always there lurking beneath, but, uh, you know, not actively. Don't let it burst through. It's interesting how a lot of the narrative put forward by Marx is familiar to us in our day-to-day. I mean, normally I don't talk about recent events, but Mm -hmm. the stuff that he's talking about here compared to, for example, the Occupy movement... Talking about the same stuff. Oh yeah, the whole the whole ninety nine percent and whatnot. They're talking about the exact same things: concentration of wealth in the hands of uh, a few people, the exploitation of the working class. Mm-hmm. It's not as though this was a, a singular moment in history that was, you know, framed by the exploitation of workers, and then you know, presto, nineteen hundred rolled around, we got some unions and everything got fixed. No, no, no.
1: And it's it's interesting to see how he wraps up nationality and, and and countries into it and you can still see how particularly that aspect of it may have uh developed further when we did get unions mm-hmm. you know yeah to to sort of in some cases really develop that that difference between the the lower and upper classes
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i mean the, the other really interesting thing about marx from a historical standpoint is that before Marx, in general, there was kind of a chaotic view of the progression of history, right? Things just okay. kind of happen. Yeah. And Marx came along and said, you know what? Yeah, on, on on a very, like, on a low level, yeah. But if you look at, like, a high-level progression of history kind of thing, mm-hmm. what you see is the people in power handing power over to a new type of person in power. And the people who are not in power... Uh, are just exploited in a different way. Yeah. And there's a very steady stream kind of beneath the surface of how human society works. Yeah. And I mean obviously he's looking most particularly at European society and these yes, models yes, don't yes. really fit as well in other places in the world. No. But as as a as a model for western society it fits relatively well. Yeah. I mean he had his critics obviously it's... and there are very valid criticisms of what he's saying here. Mm-hmm but it was one of the most cohesive um, and plausible uh, explanations for the progression of history that had been come come up with so far. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. So, I I mean, besides his own impact on history, he actually has uh, a bit of an impact on the way that we talk about and study history as well, which is kind of (laughs) interesting. Like he has his own notability within the discipline as well as being a person studied by the discipline.
1: Yeah. historiography 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 yeah yeah
0: the 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 study of the way we study history yeah it's uh meta (laughs) yeah that's perfect that's not what i was gonna say (laughs) but that's a much better way of putting it (laughs) i historiography is one of those things that every once in a while i meet somebody who's like yeah that is really interesting and for the most part if i ever mention it in any context as interesting as i try to make it you just see like eyes glaze over (laughs) somebody starts checking their phone Uh uh-huh uh-huh no it's cool tell me more but yeah i I mean i I think historiography can be discussed in interesting ways i just feel like the number of interesting ways that can be discussed are somewhat limited yeah and other than that it's a bit of a niche but I, i don't think it needs to be i think it's reasonable for people to understand the fact that there are different ways that we talk about history, mm-hmm. and the ways that we talk about history are as influenced by the people who are doing the talking as they are about the history that's being studied. Okay. It's really just a look at bias, but in a, on a more systemic level. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, I, I, I mean, throughout the 20th century, uh, a Marxist view of history becomes a very popular and rather valid view of, of um, studying history. It's a, yeah. It's a lens through which you can study things. In Western history, mm-hmm. uh, going back as far as we have recorded history, his mm-hmm. models fit everything. Yeah. Um, not always well, uh, sometimes very poorly. Yeah. But it at least gives you a context through which to analyze those things. Yes. Yes. Anyways, enough about historiography because I know people don't like it. That's okay. Um, let's get on to some of the real world stuff that's happening in the mid-19th century because it is yeah. happening. Even in the Communist uh, Manifesto in 1848, Marx is saying, I think that there are a number of nations that are on like the brink of revolt. I think this is happening very soon. Okay. I don't know for sure, but I feel like it's most likely to happen in a well-developed country Okay. that is... In the midst of its economic or industrial uh, revolution, Mm -hmm. uh, but has very few controls on worker safety and uh, labor laws. Yep. But is also not necessarily that great at centralized uh, government and policy. So I think that Germany seems like a really likely candidate for where this revolution is going to start. Okay. It actually goes through near the end and like, you know, country by country, a lot of the major countries in, in Europe kind of judges how close to the uh, inevitable communist uh, rebellion they are. <laughs> and, uh, and he ranks Germany fairly high. Interestingly enough, and you know, through a series of uh, circumstances that have absolutely nothing to do with the publication of the Communist Manifesto, yeah. 1848 turned out to be one of the most uh, tumultuous years in the 19th century for Europe, if, especially if you disregard uh, any of the wars that occurred. Huh. I will state definitively it has nothing to do with the Communist Manifesto itself. The Communist Manifesto was written for i don't I don't want to downplay them too much, but what amounts to basically a communist club in uh, in Germany, like an organization yeah. that had a handful of members? yeah, like it was it was basically contracted out, let's say. Okay. I mean, it gained a lot of traction, uh, in the future when, when people started reading Das Kapital, uh, a, a number of very notable people started quoting the communist manifesto, mm-hmm. but on its own in 1848, it was not a huge thing. Yeah. And besides which a lot of the forces that caused the 1848 rebellions were, you know, that ball was already rolling before the publication of the manifesto. So yeah. we can't credit Marx and Engels with this one, unfortunately. Now
1: I, I just want to ask a question that, that, uh, so, what did Marx do other than?
0: He was other an economist.
1: Than, other than just philosophy.
0: Yeah, he was an economist, okay. and other than that, uh, yeah. I mean, this this is a time period where you can get you can make a living writing inflammatory um, and agitating uh, pamphlets.
1: Okay, so he wasn't actually a factory worker at all, or anything no, like that.
0: No, no, he never worked in a factory. So.
1: So he wasn't exactly a proletariat himself.
0: Uh, he would be, he would probably have classified himself as petty bourgeoisie. Okay. Which is sort of this version of bourgeoisie that's oppressed by other bourgeoisie. And yet he would the be the first one to... proto-middle class. To... Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But okay. the intelligentsia would be a big part of that. So for example, teachers, merchants, but not producers would be part of the petty bourgeoisie. Um, lawyers, doctors... Um, so people of means, but not necessarily those who are di- directly uh, oppressing members of the proletariat.
1: Tertiary industry and what would be quaternary industry later.
0: Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a reasonable way of putting it. I mean, in 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 communist thought, these are the kind of people who would be instrumental in the in the initial phases of the revolution, so in helping to organize. But eventually would be turned on by the proletariat and and um, either take on a, a working class role or basically be forced out. Okay. And he was he was well aware of that. But huh. there's this idea within communism called vanguard theory, mm-hmm. which is that the revolution isn't just gonna happen; somebody has to start it. Okay. And the vanguard are people who recognize that they won't necessarily have uh, much of a place in communist society afterwards, but are willing to trade that for being a part of the group that starts the movement, starts the revolution. They're professional agitators is what they are. It's, it's, um, th- their, their entire goal is to start that movement, to get a critical mass that, that, uh, that begins that societal change. There's a, there's a weird
1: question lurking in the back about class appropriation. Oh, interesting.
0: Um, like, you know what I mean, right? Sure. And I mean, that's, I I think, again, that's, that's another one that uh, could be applied to some of the things that we've seen in recent years. Oh, absolutely. But uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting point. I I think.
1: And, And maybe less so back then, maybe that's way more applicable from a modern standpoint. To say that and with other things coming to light in the modern context of
0: this, but I think the best thing I could say about that is that the the people who subscribed to Vanguard theory who actually acted upon it mm-hmm. number one were usually working class themselves. Okay. Number two, if they were intelligentsia knew that they had nothing to personally gain from it yeah other than perhaps infamy but i mean at that point i'm not sure if that's worth gaining from actively violently mm-hmm. agitating against the current system that uh would have bestowed upon them class privilege yeah so maybe i guess is the answer to that <laughs> i i i i don't know i i hadn't i hadn't considered that uh all that much i've, I've certainly thought about it in terms of people like you know Lenin, who was a who yeah. Was, I was going to say
1: that this will probably come up more so once we get into sure. Well, I mean, I, Russian communism. Yeah,
0: Len, Lenin was certainly a, a member of the intelligentsia. He was not, you know, poorly off, but was committed enough to Vanguard theory that he was willing to foment unrest and mm-hmm. actively take part. I mean, he you know, he was he was exiled from uh, Russia for a time. He, was, he yeah. was willing to take up arms. I mean, it, a lot of that stuff is not. I don't know. I I think I think you're onto something when you talk about class appropriation to some extent. I think at this point in time the amount like the the risk to reward ratio is off so badly that I think anyone who's actively taking part in violent agitation yeah. is probably a true believer. Okay. Maybe that's maybe that's wishful thinking, maybe that's simplification, but if you're agitating for a cause that involves the um demolition of the class that is is giving you a privileged lifestyle Mm -hmm. you'd after either have to be a true believer or insane or maybe just really stupid yeah i i i guess that's i guess that's about it because yeah there's there's very little to be gained from being a member of the proletariat if you don't have to be let's put it that way (laughs) especially in the 19th century yeah absolutely so anyways 1848 they called it the spring of nations um, a okay. lot of the, a lot of the issues and, and part of the problem about talking about 1848 is that every single country that you could talk about had their own reasons for agitating during that year. And we're talking about like violent unrest. Yeah. But like 50 countries had 50, 50 countries had, uh, revolts that year. Amazing.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, not, but
0: well, across Europe and South America, actually. South America. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, And, um, for, for various reasons, again, like, no, I don't,
1: I don't, I don't think about South America as being very highly developed at this time.
0: No one thinks about South America at all, which is kind of unfortunate. <laughs> at all, yeah, I love, I love South America. I took a, I took a, yeah, listen to me. I took one course on South America and I love it. I find South America really interesting. I wish I knew a little bit more okay. uh, than I do, but it's, it's a really interesting place. And I feel like it's underrepresented tragically in, in history education because hmm. um, it's got a, it's got a rich history. Hmm. And a lot of the straits that it's in now are them being a victim of circumstance rather than a problem with their development or anything like that yeah um, was it
1: was it mostly colonial until uh until revolutions in the i guess nineteenth century. century
0: yeah yeah the the independence movements were were throughout the nineteenth century depending on which country you're talking about nineteenth and twentieth I would say I guess Uh, most were finished by the end of the 19th century. Really?
1: Yep. Not all. I would have thought most, well, I mean, you mostly hear about Che Guevara and stuff like that.
0: Yes, but,
1: and I would, I I had assumed that most of the other revolutions would be roughly at the same time.
0: Right. But he wasn't agitating for, uh, maybe I'm wrong on this. Maybe I'm about to stick my foot in my mouth. (laughs) Uh, he wasn't, necessarily uh, agitating for freedom from uh european imperialism although there were some links that he was looking to free from okay south america bounces back between back and forth between fairly liberal socialist type uh governments okay. and military dictatorships yes that's sort of the two extremes that it tends between yeah the countries that he tended to be uh agitating against were usually military dictatorships but had very little to do with Uh, ...any sort of European oversight. Okay. The United States didn't like European involvement in North or South America. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what the whole Spanish-American war was about. Yeah. By that point in time, Cuba was uh, one of the only uh, European colonies left in the Americas. Ah, okay. So the governments... I'm feeling a little more confident now that I've talked (laughs) myself through this. The governments that uh, Che Guevara was agitating against... If they were being um, exploited by anyone, it would have been the United States, not by Europe. And hmm. in that case, it would have been through puppet governments. All right. Maybe that's an episode sometime. Bit of a side yeah. note, sorry. That's okay. It's it's reasonable. I mean, he was a he was a communist agitator. That's that's a that's a reasonable thing to talk about, even yeah. if we are a hundred years off from where we started. <laughs> that's how this show goes. I mean, the reasons that the 1848 rebellion started, as I said, the only Kind of similar threads are a rise in food prices, mm-hmm. a bit of a food shortage, okay, a surplus of manufactured goods, and uh, terrible working conditions. Okay, these are bad economic things to be happening. These are not economic things you want to happen because surplus of manu- manufactured goods means less profits, means people are paying less, while food shortage means food prices go up.
1: Yeah. Uh oh. Your 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 hands full of of rocks and wood, but you need sheep and grain for your settlers of Catan.
0: Yeah, it works. <laughs> for your consideration, eighteen forty six, Great Potato Famine.
1: I was about to ask when that was. Mm-hmm. Forty six. Okay.
0: Yep. So a right contemporaneous with all of this stuff. Okay. You better believe Irish uh, Irish people were up in arms at this point. Yep. They took part. Oh yeah. Uh, in fact, it's yeah, it's it's almost. It's almost easier to like talk about which nations like weren't involved in revolt, which is like Russia and Great Britain, and you know, like just uh, Spain, for example. Great Britain wasn't. wasn't. Oh, okay. Great Britain has always been fairly good at avoiding things like this, with some notable with with a few notable exceptions. They've tend to they've tended to take on progressive measures a little earlier than others. Uh, oh, okay. In this case, for workers' rights, they had actually put into place some worker protections before 1848 that helped. Okay. I'm not going to say made things good. No, no, no. But helped. But but definitely helped. Okay. Yeah. So so it, that's that's a long tradition with with uh, Great Britain. I mean, even even look at Magna Carta going into place. Yeah. Uh, you know, rule of law applying to everyone for like long before anyone else was doing stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. They've been good at avoiding civil unrest with. As I said, a few notable exceptions, looking at you, uh, English Civil War. But yeah, you have regional conflicts popping up this year. You have the, the Hung- uh, Hungarian Revolution okay. where they tried to split away from uh, Habsburg influence. Okay. You have the Schleswig War between Denmark and uh, and the German League. Okay. Like a bunch of small things that people probably have not heard of unless they've, yeah you know, have, have more reason to look into smaller regional conflicts. Yeah. But most had like socialist undertones. People wanted workers' rights. People wanted more suffrage for for citizens. Like this was a this was a point in time where people were agitating for uh, what they were calling universal suffrage, which means all adult men yeah. uh, having the vote. But at the same time, this is eighteen forty eight, and there are countries in Europe that don't have the vote for even all adult men. How would you get the vote? Uh, usually, there were um, you had to have a certain amount of land. Well, yeah, and I mean, it would be more measured in amount of taxes paid than necessarily land Okay, holding. okay. But, yeah, there would be some sort of bar of entry that was wealth-based. Okay. Uh, it depends, again, on the region. We are talking about 50 different
1: countries yes, here. yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> Can't go one by one. Virtually all of these were put down uh, violently. <laughs> that being said... The message was heard? <laughs> oh, scared the crap out of European leaders. <laughs> because... I mean, it's not as though Marx invented communist thought in 1848. No, no, no. This had been a thing that was floating around for the past little bit. Yeah. People knew that workers were unhappy. This was the first time that it, they had shown any sort of consciousness, I guess. Backbone. Is the best word for it. Not even backbone necessarily, but the but, but uh, a concept or, or a, a conception of the fact that there are so many of them that if they organize, they can change things. Okay. Because it's very, like the, the especially if you're talking about it under Marxist terms, it's very easy to feel alone as a member of the proletariat mm-hmm. because the bourgeoisie don't want you to feel like you're part of something bigger. Yeah. That's why the conscious communists are so critical for the movement uh, to overthrow the bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. People have to understand their own power before they can use it. 1848 is the first time people actually understood their own power. I mean, I don't want to say the first time, but in, in such a widespread fashion. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously there have been problems. I mean, there were there were a number of revolts in 1830 as well, but nothing even close to 1848. Yeah. It was close enough. It wasn't close, but it was close enough that the ruling classes went, well, better make some changes. Okay, better. I'm really
1: starting to see now how, why it's called the, the Spring of Nations and starting to see the connections between that and the Arab Spring not mm-hmm. too long ago
0: sure that's uh, yeah I, I mean it's it's uh, named after the uh, the same sorts of ideas I,
1: I didn't know it was named after anything and and that makes that makes sense now
0: I mean I I don't know how consciously the Arab Spring was named after 1848 I think the idea of spring as a concept of awakening of of life returning to a place mm-hmm. as a as a sort of poetic way of describing a of fairly ugly and violent and happening yeah i mean i i think i think those could definitely evolve independently i'm not sure but i i now that now that we're talking about this i wouldn't be surprised if it was named after 1848 to some extent the similarities
1: are close enough that it, it sure it makes sense
0: yeah absolutely i mean agitating for completely different reasons but there are a lot of very similar themes but oppression mm-hmm. yeah, definitely absolutely Marx and Engels saw this and i'm just i, I was researching this and all I could think of was, like, how excited Marx must have been. Like, it's it's happening. It's just like I said. Look, you guys, I wrote it down first. Check out my book. Like, just, just, just being, like, just so jazzed that it's finally, it's it, it took so short a time. Yeah. He wrote it down and it happened right away. And yeah. just be like, look, everybody, I got this. I called it. It's just,
1: like... For months, just signing copies in his (laughs) his drafty London apartment.
0: No one wants it. He's just preparing for when people inevitably ask for it. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. But, I mean, Marx and Engels took heart from this. They Mm -hmm. they went straight to work on Das Kapital. Yeah. And, you know, incorporated a lot of the lessons learned from 1848 into their larger work. I mean, Das Kapital is, is extensive. It's very long. It goes into a lot of detail about a lot of the ideas that we talked about in the Communist Manifesto. Yeah. It definitely introduces some new ones, but I think we can kind of keep on the Communist Manifesto as like a core for for Marxism sure. uh, fairly reasonably, both sure. because it's so concise and because the things that are introduced in Das Kapital are such natural extensions of what, what they talk about in the manifesto that we don't have to spend a whole bunch of time going point by point on okay. that one, especially since Marx uh, was not around for volumes two and three. Mm hmm. It's, it's interesting to read the manifesto and then read about what's happening in 1848 and understand that the manifesto was being written uh, in that political climate just before that fuse was lit. Yeah. Because it really informs a lot of the things that he's talking about in, in terms of the attitudes of the working class, in terms yeah. of the uh, conditions under which they're uh, they're currently working, in terms of the, uh, the seeming inevitability of some of this... Uh, um, uh, revolt.
1: Yeah, because in a way, he was right. It was inevitable. It did happen.
0: Yeah, it it certainly didn't happen the way he was thinking, but Not quite, it happened but... for a lot of the reasons that he was talking about. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I mean, I think we can, I think we can chalk it up to a solid, plausible on this one. You know what I mean? Like he was, <laughs> yeah. He 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 did a pretty good job of calling. it. Yes, yeah. it didn't work out the way that he hoped, and probably a lot of that happens to be because he left behind his whole scientific shtick and got to a point where he was being very. Uh, hopeful that his vision of the future would come to pass yeah but uh it happened Mm -hmm. and he got to look at um what he wrote before he got to look at the revolts themselves yeah and he got to take that and refine his ideas from there based on what happened afterwards Hmm. um namely continuing to condemn a form of bourgeois socialism that is there to kind of placate the proletariat, which yeah. is exactly what happened in 1848, right? Yeah. They put in just enough to keep the workers happy. Yeah. And that was the exact th- the, the exact thing that he warned against, right? Yeah. And uh and so it, it really gave him an opportunity to explore that stuff a lot more. Hmm. I think that's probably a good spot to end for today in that with the end of the 1848 revolts and the uh the beginning of the work on Das Kapital, we kind of move out of a period of theoretical socialism or theoretical communism and communism as a as a movement as a social movement as a uh, real political force really starts picking up steam from here so okay maybe we keep the first half kind of very uh theoretical yeah very ideas based and the second half will kind of take some of those ideas and apply them to uh real world cases like um paris commune the uh, russian revolution and Mm -hmm. the cold war okay core tenets of communism really are terribly heretical, except perhaps for the idea that the end of our current social, economic, and political order is inevitable and that there are those who would like to hasten its demise. What becomes much more difficult for people to deal with is when those ideas, especially the whole revolution bit, start getting put into practice. That's what we'll be looking at next time as we watch larger and larger organizations attempt to implement various versions of communism. That episode will be up on April 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.